you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. Can you learn to write software without programming experience? How is the educational software unique? How important is technical confidence for young learners? Join us for a look at technology through the lens of educational software. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Online Radio Show. Every week we interview successful individuals from across the career spectrum and share their stories. Hearing these stories of others who've been down a tricky path and navigated to success has a way of inspiring confidence that I too could find success. Today's guest, Peggy Healy Stearns, began developing and writing educational software on some of the very earliest personal computer systems. What was the road like? What lessons has she learned about the intersection between technology and education? Buckle up for a fun journey through the development of some of the best-selling educational software inspired by the advent of the personal computer. So my guest today is Peggy Healy Stearns. Peggy has been in educational technology for quite a while. Uh, she has been a K-12 educator, and she's taught at the university level. And she has over three dozen national awards for her software design over the years. And we'll definitely ask her about that. Peggy loves nature and the outdoors, and she's very athletic. And uh, I share this with her. Uh, I also love to be outdoors, and uh, she says she likes to bike and kayak and ski and hike. So, Peggy, tell us a little bit about how you got into the educational technology world. Okay. Well, actually, if you don't mind, first, I'd like to tell you how I didn't get started. <laughs> sure, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> because it's kind of a funny story. When I was in college, I filled out a math puzzle in the New York Times, and I sent it in. And, of course, I didn't expect anything to come of it. Then the summer before my senior year in college, this man in a dark three-piece suit with a briefcase came to our front door. I answered the front door barefoot in my cut-off jeans, long straight hair down to my waist, and the man asked for Peggy Healy. And I said, oh, that's me. And he said, I don't think so. I'm looking for the person who sent in this puzzle. And I said, oh, that's me. Well, you'd think my appearance might have turned him off, but it didn't. So he came in and he tried to recruit me to work for IBM. <laughs> but I said, I don't want to work with computers. I want to work with people. And as much as he tried to persuade me that I would be working with people, I was absolutely adamant that I had no interest in computers. So <laughs> I tell that story because sometimes uh, the opportunity knocks at your door and, and you don't get it right away. But then, several years later in 1984, when I was teaching eighth grade, I actually touched my first computer. And it was like magic. I immediately saw the potential for education, and I excitedly told my colleagues, I, a colleague had brought it into the library. We didn't have computers in the school at that time. And so I went out of the library and I said, I'm going to design software. And everyone said, Oh, most people don't design software. Just learn to use it. 
But this time I was as turned on by computers as I had been turned off years earlier. So I went and bought an Apple IIe. I taught myself to program and I headed to graduate school. And that's when I started designing software. My first two programs were with Sunburst Communications. If anybody remembers Sunburst Communications. And my next five were with Tom Snyder, which became a division of Scholastic. And my last two have been with Fablevision. That's quite a bit of software. So tell us how detailed have you been involved in the in the projects? I mean, do you do the coding? Do you do the, the design? Do you do the curriculum design? Help us understand like your favorite part of this? Huh. Well, I can tell you the parts I do, and I like pretty much all of the parts. Generally, I come up with a concept, and usually that comes from working with teachers and talking with teachers. And then based on that concept, for instance, with the Graph Club, I talked, teachers kept saying to me that we need a better graphing program for elementary school. So I started I sat in on their classes, I researched how graphing was taught, and I started thinking about how I would do it differently. And to tell you the truth, this ties back in with the the athletic sports thing. I was going up the chairlift at the ski area on a beautiful spring day, and the Mac had just come out, and suddenly I had this vision of this is how the graph club is going to work. You know, very manipulative, very interactive, something you couldn't have done on an Apple IIe or MS-DOS. And so I then, after I get the concept, I start to flesh it out in detail. How would it work? Draw pictures. And early on, I start working with teachers. Very, I have so much respect for teachers. And they're the ones who know how things are going to work or not work. And so very early on, I will take my designs to teachers get feedback, work on them again. It's very iterative. You know, it is the the design process. And I keep going back and forth. When I think I have something pretty solid, not all the details, I will take it to a publisher. This one I took to Tom Snyder Productions. And actually, that's quite a nice little story in itself. But I will stay on, on the point here. I will take it to a publisher and try to get a contract. Although I have programmed in the past, and I understand it. I don't do the programming anymore myself, and I haven't done it for years. And as you know, the technology has advanced, so it would be very difficult for me at this point in time to pick up and do do the programming the way a professional does. So then I actually follow the process. I mean, there's always a project. There's programmers, there's project managers, there are graphic artists, but I always follow the project really every detail of it, every day. So I'm kind of like a second project manager. We work together collaboratively. It's a wonderful example of collaborative teamwork. So for the teacher out there or the uh, parent or student out there who is interested in uh, programming or bringing it into their classroom, how did you get started? What was your first program like and how did that evolve? Well, I started, as I said, I it was 1984. I touched that computer. It was like, and that computer, by the way, had a tape drive. It was a, a Tandy TRS-80 with a tape drive. <laughs> I haven't had anyone say that word for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you heard of it. <laughs> yes. It was one of the very earliest uh, desktop computers. 
And I was so excited. As I said, I got an Apple IIe. I bought books on programming in basic and I started teaching myself to program. Then when I went to graduate school, you know, we did more sophisticated programming. But let's see, my very first program designs, one was for a timeline program, which was very similar to Tom Snyder Productions Timeliner. You know, you'd enter events and a date and it would put them all in order. Having taught social studies, I saw the value of that. They had theirs out, not at the time, but they got it out before I did anything with mine. And one of my other first designs, these are like college assignments, was a grading program. And that I didn't really do anything with. And then I started designing my very first commercial program, which was um, Solve It. And it was actually a reading mystery program. You would read the background and then you'd search for clues and the clues were all in and or uh, logic. And you'd be able to eliminate suspects and figure out the solution to the mystery. And that was published by Sunburst Communications. But I had started the programming on that. And when I signed the contract with Sunburst, they very kindly offered to do the programming. So they did the graphic art and the programming. And I did the design and the teacher materials and worked with their team. Wow. So I'd like to back up even a little further because now it occurs to me that I'd like to know a, a different answer to another question, and that is, how did you get into teaching? You, you said you wanted to work with people, but what was it about teaching that drew you to teaching? You know, I had been a lifeguard and taught swimming, and I think that that little experience of teaching kids to swim and seeing the joy and the sense of accomplishment is what inspired me. You know, I had been an undergraduate. I was an economics major. You know, so one would think I would have gone into business. But I think I've always connected more to working with children than being in a corporate world. So did you take the straight path from there into college, or was that after you had the degree? From Okay, I had my undergraduate in economics, and then I did my master's in education, and actually in social studies education, and then later went back for my PhD with a focus on technology and elementary education. And in between the master's and the PhD, I had gone directly into teaching. I taught social studies and language arts. Interesting. So the economics piece perked up my ears. Now, I, I took a couple of economics classes, and, and I didn't like economics because I was the, yeah. kind of the sciencey type, and, and that was too squishy for me. But you know, over time, I've gotten much more interested in economics because of what the implications. So I'm curious, why economics? <laughs> well, I would like to tell you that I had this vision in childhood of what I wanted to be. But the fact is, I didn't have a vision. And I didn't even have a vision when I went to college. I went to college because you go to college. And I started as a math major because that was my area of expertise. And, oh, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but I didn't like my math professor, so I switched majors. And then I switched to psychology. I switched, switched to English history. I switched three or four times, maybe four or five times. Then I switched to economics, and my advisor said, are you considering graduating? Because <laughs> if you are, you're going to have to like stay with something. That's how I ended in economics, and ironically, 
economics is really math. So I was in a way back to where I had begun, but it was applied in a more visible way. But it was just, you know, it was really by chance that I, I didn't know where I was going, to be honest, until I touched a computer. Well, that's kind of refreshing. I think that a lot of people will identify with that. Uh, I switched a couple of times in college. I know many of my friends had the same experience. So as you got into the software design, did you sort of focus on that as an educator or was that kind of a, a side thing as you were trying to solve other problems in the classroom? When I got into software design, that was the point, and thinking back to the exact timing, when I, had, I was a technology coordinator, and of course those pieces fit very nicely, and also I was teaching the use of technology in education at State University of New York at Buffalo Graduate School of Education. So all of those things fit together very well. Then I started doing seminars for the uh, state-of-the-art seminars out of Torrance, California, and I was doing seminars around the country on using technology and education. At that point, I had to really leave my teaching at the K-12 and university levels because I was traveling a lot. And eventually, the software design was taking so much time that it became my full-time job. So how do you decide at this point, you've been doing this for a while now, how do you decide what's your next project? Usually, I'm inspired by a problem I see in the classroom or teachers coming to me and saying, this is what we need to do. We, you, we don't like the way this is happening. Do you have a way for making it easier for students? This particular project was inspired by Glenn Bull at the University of Virginia. I give him tremendous credit because in 2008, Glenn Bull at the University of Virginia was exploring how 3D printers and inexpensive digital cutters, things like the Silhouette and the Cricut, could support STEM education. At that point in time, most people had not even heard of digital design and fabrication, and they certainly hadn't thought about using these inexpensive cutters to support STEM in the classroom. But Glenn had this vision and when he saw my programs, Community Construction Kit and Diorama Designer, which are about creating flat patterns, you design buildings, it prints out the flat pattern, you cut them out, you fold them up. He saw that that was the same kind of thing he was envisioning, except the kids were cutting by hand. Although we've moved way beyond creating buildings, but that was, you know, one of the early images of what you could do. So... In January 2009, Glenn called me. He told me about what he was thinking. I loved his idea. And he asked me if I would work with him and design the on-ramp software for what became known as the Fabit School project. So the, the Fabit School, Glenn really is the one who pulled together this whole coalition that includes uh, the Smithsonian, Princeton, Canon, obviously now me, Reynolds Center, um, Fable Vision Learning. But several school districts, a very large collaborative. And so it was really Glenn who pulled me into this project. So tell us a little more about this project, because I, I suspect that there are still many teachers who may not have heard of this, and I would very much like them to hear about it, because I, I love what you do, and I love what uh, certainly what uh, FableVision does. So tell us a little bit about the software, and why a teacher should jump in with both feet. Well, 
I think that the idea of making, which you know a lot about, is a very powerful concept and a very powerful way for students to learn. So there's been a big movement towards making in education because making is an opportunity for kids. It's kind of an advanced form of project-based learning. You know, making stuff is intrinsically motivating. It gives the students the opportunity to explore and invent, problem-solve, discover, and they apply what they've learned in an immediate and meaningful context. And making can be about using a lot of different kinds of uh, materials. The kind of making we're involved in is digital design and fabrication. So you make your design on the computer and then you output it to something like an inexpensive digital cutter, something like the Silhouette or Cricut, or to a 3D printer or to a laser cutter or other types of machines. And the problem we ran into when we started working on digital design and fabrication to support STEM and STEAM is that the software was not friendly for the elementary grades. And <laughs> our, yeah, you know that. And, and our original focus was grades three to eight. We're now moving downwards, and I'll, I'll tell you about that. But I mean, we're including lower, a lower grade range. But Maker Studio, Fab at School Maker Studio, our new software is the first digital design and fabrication software designed specifically for the classroom. And because the software is designed for the classroom, the interface is more friendly and intuitive than other digital design software. There are also a lot of unique tools to facilitate the mechanics so students can focus on the design process. For example, ready-made shapes. We noticed that kids, when they were creating like the flat patterns to fold into nets to create something simple like a lantern or an automaton or some other little machine, it's difficult to create the pieces that fit together properly, to create the fold lines, to create the tabs if you're using cardstock. We, by the way, we should probably talk about that some more. We're focusing on paper and cardstock, and I can talk more about that. But um, the mechanics become difficult for students, not the thinking process, but the mechanics of making, getting things the right size. So an example of a tool is we have ready-made shapes that are pre-sized and magnetized so they snap together. They fit together, they snap together, and when they snap, they fold, they create a fold line. So you're immediately making your net. We also have another tool that allows you to automatically add tabs and you can customize them, but that way it makes it easy to say, okay, I'm going to fold up this box and when I get there, I'm going to have the tabs to put it together. We also have a 3D view. So if I'm creating a pop-up or a flat pattern or net for a 3D object, I can look at it in 3D view. I can drag a slider, watch it fold. I can put my cursor in the view window and move it around so I can look at my construction from different angles. So I get to review what I'm doing while I'm doing it. You know, those kinds of tools are designed specifically for the classroom. Our goal as I'd said, and what Glenn had asked me to do from the beginning is to design an on-ramp that makes it easy for teachers and students to enter the process, to start making wherever they're comfortable and wherever their budget allows. You could actually start with scissors. So there are actually two aspects to the on-ramp. 
One of them is a range of projects from simple to sophisticated, 2D stuff, pop-ups, 3D stuff. So 2D stuff would be the kind of things that teachers have routinely in the past done with the old, big, bulky, expensive mechanical die cutters like the AccuCut and the Ellison, display materials, classroom manipulatives, and pop-ups. That's really fun because we have a collection of ready-made pop-up elements, square, triangle, oval, trapezoid, that can be resized, colored, manipulated, arranged in any variety of ways for kids to make really unique pop-ups, or they can make pop-ups from scratch with a line tool or with a library image or an imported image. And pop-ups are really fantastic because they include a tremendous amount of math and engineering thinking, and it's possible to connect them across the curriculum. And then the 3D stuff would be things, you know, any kind of working machine, a 3D solid, packaging, the kinds of things. Well, as I said, we are supporting other output like 3D printers and laser cutters, but our focus has been on paper and cardstock. And that is actually the other aspect of the on-ramp because we are supporting technology from scissors to inexpensive digital cutters, to 3D printers, laser cutters, and beyond. Our hope is that people can use one piece of software that's fairly friendly and intuitive and use it with different types of tools depending on what they're comfortable with and what they have access to and what is affordable. So as I was listening to you describe the software, and I, you and I have talked about this before, I was reminded of a something that happens on a regular basis with us in the classroom. And it's that students and teachers very often don't have the engineering schema, like you said, for how to put tabs in the right place and uh, cut marks and fold marks. Not that they couldn't get it, but just there's no schema for that. And I love it that you guys have designed a software that puts those uh, things in automatically. And over time, I suspect that the students and the teachers will start to get a scheme in their head for, oh, yeah, there, there should probably be a, a, a mark here and there should be a line there. I don't know if you guys can, if you can tell me about this. How have you come at this from the back end? Like, have you brought in engineers or people who build these kinds of things to think through the processes that are required behind the scenes to make that more transparent? We are working with the University of Virginia School of Engineering. And, of course, also the University of Virginia Curry School of Education. And a lot of, actually, several of the graduate fellows there are also engineers who have decided to apply their learning to um, education. So we've had a lot of input. We're also working with the Princeton University School of Engineering. So we have a lot of input from engineers. One of the things I particularly love about the engineers we've been working with is that they are so down to earth. They, they can really see how they can bring these concepts down to a level where they understand how to present them to elementary students and teachers. Not every engineer can do that, but they are wonderful that way. I think that shows a real understanding of the root concept and of learning. I actually know one, one engineer, so you know several, I know one engineer who is an educator who has a degree in engineering, he's been applying his, his learning to education. And you're right, that is very rare. How did you meet 
these are these people that Professor Bull knew or the people that you knew? How did these people get involved in the in the collaboration? In some cases, well, in most of the graduate fellows caught wind of what we were doing because there has been some publicity for some years and they contacted Glenn and were interested in the program. Glenn personally reached out to the University of Virginia School of Engineering and to Princeton University School of Engineering. So some of it is his reaching out to these other people and other institutions, and some of it is people hearing about what we're doing and wanting to participate in the program. How important do you think it is for engineers and scientists and people sort of outside of the K-12 education system to be involved and to bring feedback into this system? I think it's tremendously important. We have had weekly phone calls with the what we're calling the Smithsonian Invention Kit Collaborative, and that includes UVA, Princeton, the Smithsonian. And on those calls, I'm listening to these engineers, and I'm learning every week, and they're learning from us. So it's really important. You have to get the engineering right, and you also have to get the education right. And just like any kind of project, you need the expertise from a whole team of people. Everybody has different expertise. And if you want to do a really good job, you need all the different kinds of expertise. So I have experience prior to getting involved in education myself. I was a physicist working in uh, mostly graduate level and research type applications. And what I noticed was that I was having trouble hiring appropriate people into positions to work with us in our projects. And I got a little bit worried because I began to ask, you know, these questions, not being familiar with education and where education was as a whole, but just, you know, seeing this, this small keyhole view of, oh, no, we're not finding the engineers and the scientists that we need for our projects. But that's not a short process. I mean, creating an engineer might start in, you know, fourth grade. It might start in eighth grade. It might start in first grade. How much input do you think we need you know, from some of these other professions into education, not, not to monkey around with things or meddle, but just to help give the long-term perspective of, you know, well, we need these kinds of skills, we need these kinds of thinking? Well, we are getting that input from the sciences and from business, and I think that's enormously important. And you hit upon something that is very key to what we're doing, the fact that you have to start early. It's a really long process to educate an engineer. For I mentioned that originally we were focusing on grades three to eight, never intending that it would be simply grades three to eight, but that was our initial focus. And then recently we have were brought into a project with the MIT Fab Foundation TIES, which is the Teaching Institute for Excellence in STEM, and the Bay Area Discovery Museum to collaborate together to create the world's first early childhood fab lab. So that will be pre-K to three. So we are seeing, I mean, the research shows that kids by grade five have decided that they are or are not good at science, are or not, are not good at math or it's not appropriate for them. And so they've almost locked down their vision by grade five, and it becomes much more difficult to recruit them at that point. 
So what we're trying to do, that's a whole important aspect of the on-ramp. We're trying to introduce engineering, design thinking, the kinds of skills that scientists and engineers will use early. And we're trying to be sure that kids can be successful because that's one of the most important things. They need to see themselves as able to do these kinds of things. So you had mentioned starting early. Yes, we're going actually all the way down to pre-K, all the way through, well, up to eighth grade, and we're already looking at high school. In fact, the Bay Area Discovery Museum, which is where the world's first MIT certified early childhood fab lab will be uh, located, you know, works extensively with pre-K kids. Well, we've been observing this and mostly working with middle school and high school students, but we do find a significant challenge that students have coming in if they haven't had the opportunity to tinker, to play, to try new things. They're often major roadblocks. And again, my past experience is very consistent with what you have what you have said. I heard a statistic from uh, one of the educational groups at the Department of Defense, and the Department of Defense has identified seventh graders as the turning point in math for go, no-go on engineering and science. And they have a, a big push to get students in middle school into math because if they don't make it through the math, they, they, it's very difficult at that point to go back. It isn't that it's impossible. It's just it's sort of a, a watershed line. And you said fifth grade, and those are very close. I, I can't believe that those are unrelated numbers. And so getting into uh, making things, building things, engineering projects, project-based learning early is very important. And I love that your experience coming from a completely different direction is so consistent with what, with what we've seen as well. Yes, it is so important to get started early. And to me, it's, you know, I've had this idea from early on, this concept that we have to demystify engineering. People think engineering is just about sending rockets to the moon or really high-end projects. Everything is engineered. A toothbrush is engineered. Everything we use is engineered. And people need to see engineering as being something that is familiar and something that they can approach and they can do. Kids need to feel successful. Yeah, absolutely. We've Again, uh, your experience coming at this from a different angle and us, very consistent. We The confidence we identify as one of the major goals of our programs is that at the end of a week or you know a semester or a year or a couple of days is that the students exit with more confidence than they enter because if we feel like if they have that confidence that it gives them the ability to try again and it's that ability to try again that's so important yes i i'm sure they exit with confidence and with curiosity which is also extremely important so we're getting close to the end, so I need to take a left turn on you, Peggy. And we always ask two questions at the end. And the first one, I'm just excited to hear your answer on this. In the digital age, we have uh, YouTube and we have Google and we have all these other digital making tools. What does it mean to be educated with the word educated in quotes? Define that term for us now. Well, obviously, that's a really big question with a lot of answers. So... I would say that education is not so much about formal schooling and degrees, although in our society that's actually usually a part of it. 
but perhaps the most meaningful learning comes from life experience and relationships. So I think being educated is more than knowing answers. It's more important to be curious, which ties in with what you were saying about what I had said about your workshops. I think it's more important to be curious, to ask questions, and to know how to find answers. And as we discover ourselves in the context of society, we have a chance to discover our own voice and develop the courage to express ourselves. And think I think that voice is the bridge to our own unique creative potential. And that's our opportunity to contribute. So I think voice is one of the most important markers of a well-educated person. That's excellent. I, I also love that you connected the curiosity and the creativity as an essential piece of that. Uh, those are so important. So the last question, it's a, more of a philosophical question. And what is the purpose of an education? Why are we educating? Another big question. The most basic purpose of education in pretty much every culture is to equip children with the life skills they need to cope and survive. Beyond that, I think of education as the opportunity to taste the diversity of life and culture, to see the connections that transcend time and space, and to appreciate and respect other ideas, concepts, cultures, and points of view. And in that context, to discover and accept ourselves so we can fulfill our potential and we can help each other along the way. Excellent. Well, I think we're going to wrap right there. Peggy, thank you so much for giving us a, a view of this new software that you guys are creating and helping us see the long-term view on software and education. If our audience is interested in reaching out and learning more about you and about this program, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, they could go to my website, which I think you're going to post to learn more about me. They can go to the www.fabmakerstudio.com to learn more about this latest project. Excellent. Well, thank you, Peggy, for taking some time to talk to our parents, students, and educators today. Well, thank you very much, Steve. I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate the opportunity. Every now and then, I have a guest who completely educates me on the history and perspectives of a particular aspect of education. Peggy has seen educational software from one end to the other. There probably isn't a trend in ed software in the past 30 years that she hasn't touched. Sometimes it's just good to reach out for someone else's expertise. And I'm so glad I get the opportunity every week to be educated by some of the best minds in the country. If you think you might like a little extra help yourself inspiring your teens this summer, point your browser to the ttinvent.com website and find Inventor Camp. This summer at Inventor Camp, teenagers from across the country will be inspired to try on the title Inventor. Your kids may need a little push to start, but just like Alex, after the first day at Inventor Camp, they'll be hooked. Just go to ttinvent.com, that's ttinvent.com, and check out Inventor Camp. <laughs>